Welcome to Garden Church Podcast. We are in a series called Courageous Orthodoxy, Convictions for Resilient Faith. And for us at this time, we are looking at the foundations of Christian belief. We are trying to encourage you as followers of Jesus to live out of a robust theology. We're hoping that you would be encouraged by this and that you will ground your faith in the Word of God and you will live a vibrant life in the way of Jesus. Hope this empowers you and encourages you in your faith. It's good to be with you uh, this morning uh, and a week out from from Easter, where the world finally started its long journey back home again, and uh, we are invited into what it means to be resurrection people, not just people who every once in a while, once a year, or are are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. But what does what are the implications of that going forward for all of us? who are in Jesus. What does resurrection life mean? And it will not surprise you to know, perhaps it will, but it, it, it ought not surprise you to know that um, contrary to popular belief, Jesus actually did come to establish an organization, to establish an institution so that we don't ever forget what it means to be resurrection people. Because where two or three of us are gathered in Jesus' name, Somebody needs to help us know what we're doing. You can't have an organization without some structure. You need bones to hold up the body. And whether the body is your physical body or the body of Christ, there needs to be some structure. There needs to be some, some uh, there there. Otherwise, it's just amorphous and floats off uh, with every wind that blows, yeah? So, so it's, it's important for us to think through this because we, we think, uh, you, you know, Jesus just came to say, it's just kind of a kumbaya moment and it was all lovely and everything. But if you have a mission as big as God's mission is, that's not going to do it. You need some folks to help us keep our eyes on the prize, to remind us on a regular basis what we're here for and where we're going. And that is called the church. And the problem is, of course, it doesn't take very long before any organization, any institution, even one that's established by Jesus, to get hijacked. We, we babbleize everything. We find ways to utilize something that Jesus has put in place to save the world for our own personal advantage and gain. Anybody been hurt by the church? Jesus has been hurt by the church. And he's inviting us, I think, to take the wounds we have received as the body of Christ and do what he did with his wounds. Remember, on this day, a week after the resurrection... Uh, one of our brothers wasn't in the room when Jesus showed up last week. Thomas missed the moment. I mean, if, if you're going to miss something, that would not be the thing to miss, right? It's like, you could have bought bagels anytime, bro. You could have, but there, you weren't there. You weren't there. And so Jesus shows up the next week. And remember, remember what Thomas said. When he got back, all these guys are just vibrating with excitement that Jesus has been raised from the dead and showed up with them, right? And Thomas is saying, I don't know what you guys are smoking, but I'm not going to believe. I can't believe. I'm too wounded to believe. Unless I can put my finger through the holes, unless I can, because I was there. I saw what, I, I'm out. 
I'm tapping out. And so the next week, Jesus shows up. And you can see him wink at Thomas. You can see the gleam in his eye. Because he and Thomas have been around this mountain before. And Jesus says, let's do this. Lean in. Let these wounds become for you a moment of revelation. A moment through which stream the lights of glory. I can't help but believe that the body of Christ, similarly, with the wounds we bring and the wounds we afflict to others, because it's not just that we have been wounded by the church. We have sometimes been the church that has wounded others. What if God's grace is big enough to take all of those wounds that I have received as well as all of those wounds that I have contributed to and become a moment of revelation for somebody. A moment through which stream the lights of glory of redemption and reconciliation. Well, that's gonna take more than our capacity. That's gonna take a work of the spirit. And it is as a result of that that I want to walk you through this morning in a continuation of our conversation on the kind of the markers of the church that we have been in for a number of, of, of weeks now and, and think through what God had in mind when he built the church in the first place. Because Jesus is very clear. He's the one who builds the church. We don't know how to do that. We can gather crowds. We know how to do that. But that's not the same thing as building the church. And we want to, uh, actually, we want to set aside our capacity to build crowds and partner with Jesus as he, as he builds his church. We want to learn how he's doing that and bless what he's doing because God has been doing this ever since the beginning of time. Genesis chapter one makes it very clear that the image of God, which we are created to be, has a, an identity and has a mission. It's going, supposed to go into all the, all the world, Old Testament language, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and extend, if you will, the rule of God uh, in, the, in, in the world. And so it hasn't changed. God has always had people. There are things that God could do and will not do until he finds somebody who is willing to partner with him in the doing of it because he doesn't want us to think that this is something he's doing, if you will, on his own. He's designed us to partner with him. And so he's waiting for women and men who will step up to the plate and say, count on me. I'm going to do it poorly, but I'm going to give it a shot. And he's going to invite us into that. So we pick this up. I, I, I do need to tell you, this is going to be tough for me to do. I usually lecture on this, and my class is about 30 hours of conversation on the church. Um, don't panic. I'll get you out of here in time for beating the Baptists at the buffet. But uh, I, I, I want you to uh, kind of fasten your seatbelts because we're going to be moving fairly quickly here um, as, as we think through what this, is, what this is about. We pick up Jesus's language. Uh, all of these scriptures you have heard in one time were replaced, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, exegeting each of them, but a couple of key ideas. Matthew chapter 16 is where we start. Uh, verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi we were here not that long ago, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say you're 
John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What do you think, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't figure this out on your own. Rather, my father in the heavens. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been loosed in the heavens, bound in the heavens. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in the heavens. We talked about this one a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into the backside of it. But the part that I want you to notice is that part that says, on this rock, I will build my church. We get a little anxious when Jesus does this word play with Peter, Petros, rock. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I want you to think, though, on what else would Jesus build his church but people? People. This isn't about Peter becoming the first pope. This is about Peter being the one who, by virtue of his confession of who Jesus was, stepped into a kind of reality that anyone who makes similar confession that Jesus is Lord Parallel steps into that reality and becomes part of the building material of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing here. Taking the folks who make this confession, the people who are the confessing people, who confess not just the words of their mouth, but the ways that they live, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. Those are the ones who then become the church that Jesus is building. This, this idea, that word church here is, the Greek word is ekklesia. Ek, out, klesia, or kaleo is the Greek for called. So these are the called out ones. These are the separated ones, not because they're special, but because in their confession, they step into a brand new, a different reality, a new community. Michael alluded to it in leading us through the communion this morning, a new community that God is building. How do you get into that? You confess and live with your life the fact that Jesus is Lord. I think it's important that we need to say it's not just about believing this. It's not just about saying it out loud. It has to work its way down into your heart and into your hands and into your feet because the lordship of Jesus is not just about believing something, it's about living in the reality of what you believe. Do, do you see? It's not just that we believe in Jesus, it's that we are choosing to believe Jesus. By which I mean, when Jesus says something, we take him seriously and we begin to put it into practice. We're going to be awkward. We're going to be beginners for most of our lives. We're going to be struggling to do what Jesus said. That's all right. Get started. You develop capacity on the way. You don't develop capacity and then launch. Do, do you know what I'm, I'm saying? So it's not just, again, checking the box. Oh, yes, Jesus is God. Every demon in hell has checked that box. They know who Jesus is. The question is whether there's intent to follow Jesus in his way. This is why the church was first known as the people of the way. 
the way of Jesus. And by living in that way long enough and publicly enough, people came to identify them with Jesus. That's where the word Christian comes from, little Christ. I recognize something of him in you. Oh man, wouldn't it be cool if that was what Christian meant today? Rather than some weirdness that we have to, I don't even use that language. I don't, I, are you a Christian? Uh, Yeah, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> anybody else? I mean, it's like, I, I, I got to explain 83 ways from Sunday what kind of Christian I'm not. <laughs> so what I'm starting to say now, you've heard me say this before, but just to underline it, I tell people I'm not qualified to answer that question. <laughs> if you follow me around, though, for a year or two, and my life reminds you of Jesus, then you can conclude what I am. That's the point right? That he invites us to build the church and, and, and to remember that the church is not for the people who are in it. The church for the, are for, is for the people who aren't in it yet. It's not the kingdom, but it's the leading edge of the kingdom. It's extending the rule of God. That's why he says the gates of hell will not prevail as the kingdom through the church, extends its influence into the world. So uh, Paul gets a hold of this in his friends, writing to his friends in Ephesus. He says in chapter one, verse 15, uh, for this reason, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowing of him, not knowing about him, knowing him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can also know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, in the church? Jesus is receiving the church as his inheritance. Strange language, but it's the language in, 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 uh, that Paul uses to help us know how highly treasured the church is in Jesus's thinking, if you will. He receives the church as, as his inheritance. And uh, it is that then the surpassing greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. All of this, he says, Paul says, are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, he put everything in subjection under his feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So did you get what the, the shift now? So Jesus is, is building the church as the, the leading edge of the kingdom, Paul wants to go uh, a, a slight different direction and says, Christ has been given as the head to the church, which is his body. So there is a, 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 an organic uh, connection between Christ as the head, the source of the church, and the church is his body. This for Paul is not metaphor. 
This is the practical, literal reality. When you, as a member of that body, are engaged in the world, they see Jesus with skin on. You're his body. You represent him. You, you model him. And that has some serious implications, doesn't it? This is, this is why the journey towards becoming identified with him in behavior, attitude, disposition is so critical. Because you are often the only Jesus anybody ever sees. And the question will be whether they are drawn deeper into the knowing of him or repelled somehow by the Jesus they see in me. I want them to fall in love with him because I've fallen in love with him. I want not, not, not argued into believing things, but the power of a greater affection that draws people to, to love who I love, yeah? And, and so in, in that orientation, Paul says, this is, this is well, he doesn't say it quite this way, but this is the, the New Testament version of the image of God. Old Testament image of God, New Testament body of Christ, exactly the same. So we are part of this body of Christ. Uh, as the church began to reflect on this a little bit more seriously, they came up with four words that they have used and have for now thousands of years defined kind of the character of the church, what the church is like from the inside out. Uh, and they are that the church is one, that the church is holy, that the church is Catholic, and that the church is apostolic. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And I want to take just a few minutes on each of those. The first one is going to take the most time, so don't panic when you look at your watch and he's, oh, he's still got three more points left. <laughs> don't worry. The, the oneness of the church leads, though, because for Jesus, it's the most important one out of which everything else flows. It is the focus of his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Within hours, when he prays this prayer, he is going to be dead. Listen to his heart for the 12 guys in the room and for the folks like us who believe as a result of their faithful witness. Sanctify them, he says, verse 17, chapter 17. By the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself so that they too may be truly sanctified, set apart. And my prayer isn't for them alone. I pray for all those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them, listen to this, may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world will know, so that the world will believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the very first marker of the church is that it is one. There's only one church, only one church. It has multiple different fragmentations and expressions, 
Some of them have disintegrated. But in general terms, I'm not anxious about the multiple expressions. For me, the illustration is of a singular light that shines through a diamond and then is refracted on different colors. We need all of the refractions of the light that shines in to properly image the light. I'm not anxious about people who think differently or believe differently or practice differently. As long as the singular light is shining through, we're good to go. And I want to underline that it's not only um, uh, acceptable, it's not only um, uh, uh, something that we can uh, agree to, It's because uh, this isn't about unanimity, this is about each of us finding our unique place and the community, our tribe, if you will, that supports us in our unique place so that Christ is adequately imaged. Brothers and sisters, not one single local church can adequately image Jesus. He's too great, he's too magnificent, he's too wonderful, he's too beautiful. We need all of the people who are the people of God to be fully themselves, part of a, of a community that when the light shines, refracts out in a variety of ways. I, I, and, and I've got to be careful on this because I, I, I think my little shade of the spectrum, my, my you know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, indigo, violet, wherever I am on the Roy Gabiv scale, right? That, that it's the only color. No, you don't get to do that. You're not the light. You're the refractor of the light. And I need to embrace all of the pieces, all of the parts, all of the ways that the life, light is shining through others. And Jesus is praying this. Why? Well, because this is how the world's going to know that he came from the Father. This is, this is, this is mission-centric. This isn't just, can't we all get along? Wouldn't it be nice? This is essential to the work of the kingdom that we figure out how to set aside all of the things that we use to subdivide us into tribal identities. We set them aside in the proclamation of our singular heart allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Nothing can qualify what it means for me to be a disciple of Jesus. Not my political stance, not my gender, not my socioeconomic status, not my ethnicity, not my race. None of those things can qualify disciple. Disciple qualifies all of them. It's the noun. Those are the adjectives. You with me? It's critical for us. It's critical for us to stand in the reality of being a disciple and then let that work its way out. The world needs a multi-hued witness of the gospel of Jesus joined together as a single refraction of the light of glory that shines through the church. And this is the thing that Jesus is praying for. I think it's worthwhile noticing that we are the only ones who can deny Jesus the answer to his prayer. God the Father will not, because that's the God, you, you heard him say it. It's the will of the Father. Satan and all of the demons of hell cannot deny Jesus the answer to his prayer. They don't have the capacity or power to do that. But we do. We can say to him, no, I will not be in fellowship with somebody who doesn't agree with me on X, Y, or Z. And Jesus is saying, you sure you want to do that? Jesus invites us to lay down our preference and join him at the center. 
This is his prayer. The unity of the church is a primary testimony, and that's why the church is being one, strives towards that unity. Here's Paul as he writes to his friends again in in Ephesians, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve, what? The unity of the spirit. Oh, wait, now we've got all three of them in a line here. Father, son, and spirit are all moving towards unity, and we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Well, because there's only one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of, uh, of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you notice that last line, grace was given, suggests that, yes, of course, diversity Every one of us has a unique place in the body of Christ and we want to be fully ourselves in that place because my part is needed in the body of Christ, but I don't get to rule on your part as the body of Christ. We move to that that diversity that is given by the spirit is only enabled as we first realize we we are one. We are what? Unity comes first and then is expressed in diversity. You don't get unity by emphasizing diversity. Some of you have been in workplaces where there's been a concerted effort to create unity by emphasizing diversity. And what you get instead is more hostile camps opposed to one another. You don't get it that way. You get diversity by emphasizing unity and then inviting everybody at the table to sing the song that they bring to the, to, the, to, the, to the place. Does that make sense? So Jesus is inviting us. Paul is inviting us in, into this with this longing uh, that the spirit is working towards recognizing diversity that moves for as an expression of, of unity. And the way that he has, it's brilliant how he has designed this system to work. Uh, He says here in verse uh, 11 of the same chapter, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? So that they could leverage their gifts to superiority? No. So that they could build a following on Instagram? No. So that they can equip others for the work of ministry. Others for the work of service, building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the role of these diverse gifts, these people who are given by God to the church have as their primary function equipping each individual person to be fully themselves in collaborative, cooperative, relational, mutually supportive relationships with each other part. Genius. Genius. This is why the the language of leadership in the church tends to go sideways really quickly. 
Leadership in the church means who goes first in laying down their right to be in charge. That's what it means. Or not. Maybe not. I, <laughs> this, is why, this is why language of leadership in marriage is just so dumb. Okay, I'll leave that one alone because that's a whole other, whole other thing. So, church is one. Second. By the way, these are not affirmational, let's try as hard as we can, fingers crossed. This is the reality into which we step. This is true. And the degree to which we are moving towards oneness or not is the degree to which we are in the church or not. You, you with me? So one, holy. Uh, the church is holy and strives now to be what it is. Because Jesus is not just building a community, he's building a community of a certain kind that is unlike anything ever seen anywhere else in the world. So Paul says to his friends, again, in Ephesus, you're already figuring out that the book of Ephesians is the church book. It's how, where we go to see what this is all about. He says to them, verse 17, I say to this, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk, that you live no longer as the Gentiles, here he's using it to mean non-Christians, also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. They're excluded, sadly, from the life of God because they are willingly ignorant. The hardness of their hearts has enabled them to become callous. The result? They've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have uh, heard him, have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Why? Because it's being corrupted. You know this. It's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and instead that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you, having laid aside the old self, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. When we stand in the reality that Jesus is Lord, and we begin to work that out in the power of the spirit in everyday life, we ought not be surprised that Jesus gets to weigh in on who we sleep with, how we spend our money, how we make our money, how we are Christians as disciples in the marketplace. We don't, if you're going to put a little fishy on your business card, <laughs> you better conduct your business in the way that points to heaven. You don't get to put your finger on the scale with certain customers. You don't get to treat people with contempt. You don't get to pe treat people in any way other than as part of the image of God. Do, do you see what he's This Can we just vote holiness off the island? No, we can't. God wants to weigh in on this. He even cares how we talk to one another. He cares about the jokes we tell. He cares about the entertainments we expose our minds and hearts to. Why does holiness matter so much? Because he wants us to be special? No, because he wants us to be useful. Holiness is not about specialness. It's about usefulness. 
It's not about moral superiority so we can shake our finger at those who we view as less morally formed than we are. God help us. Anybody else got a log in your eye that it disables your ability to help somebody with a speck in theirs? Brothers and sisters, it's not that they don't have a speck in their eye. They do, and it's frustrating and annoying to them. It's just that you can't be helpful to them because the log of judgment renders you unable to assist them. Take that log out of your own eye. Holiness is not about specialness. It's about usefulness. This is what Jesus says. Remember in, in, in Matthew chapter uh, 5 where he calls us salt and light. Remember those two images? Those are images of holiness. What if the salt, though, has lost its, its saltiness? What if what you're counting on to preserve and covenant a community doesn't have what it, what if it's just the same as everybody else? What if the light that we're intended to live and modeling a, a way of life that is winsome and attractive and wonderful, marriages that, 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 that reflect the singleness, that reflect the glory of God. What if somebody's put a basket over that light? Holiness is usefulness. If there's no difference between you and everybody else in terms of your moral lifestyle, why should anybody listen to you about anything that promises life eternal? Because eternity is not where you're going. It's where you currently live now. So we're invited into this, right? It's a platform on which I stand to extend my, my hand to those brothers and sisters who are drowning around me and invite them into a vibrant new way of living that reflects the character of God and prepares them for life in the age to come. We are invited into this way of living that is winsome and non-condemning. The church is holy. It's holy. Not so that it can lecture people on how they ought to behave, but so that the ways that they manage their relationships and their money and their sexuality and all of the other things that I mentioned are so demonstrably more effective at producing a certain community that people are saying, I, I, I want some of that. Just like when they look in the church, one, and see, look, those people are wildly different from one another, but they love one another. How can I get into that? Is there room for me? And the answer is, oh yeah, you can sit beside me. Do you, do you see? Because um, uh, uh, this idea, well, you've got the idea. So, one holy, third is Catholic. The word Catholic here means universal. That means there's nobody who doesn't belong. There's no thems to which we are the us. There's just us's that don't know it yet. That we are sent to as ambassadors of the one who has included us to say to them, you're us too. He's made a way for you too. So all of the previous ways that we have of subdividing our culture are now null and void. 
Uh, Paul writes to his friends in Ephesians again, verse one, chapter three, this reason I, Paul, prisoner of, the, of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, now Gentiles in the ethnic sense, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, uh, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, this is in chapter one. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into this incredible mystery of Christ. In other generations, it wasn't known to the sons of men, but now it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, specifically that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I've been made a minister of this according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what is the administration, the economy of this mystery, the working out of this mystery, which for ages has been hidden with God, namely that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Oh, oh, I see what you're doing there, Paul. This isn't, this isn't about some political movement. We've got an audience, not just the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrew chapter 11, but we've got principalities and powers, spiritual forces in dark places who are looking on to see whether this God experiment is going to actually work. And when we allow our politics or our race or our gender or our beliefs on any of the things that we have allowed to divide us over the last several years, when we allow them to get in the way of our allegiance, not just to Jesus, but to one another, we chalk up another victory for the principalities and powers. So Paul says, you don't get to decide who sits at the table because it's not your table. Look around, look at the place cards on each side of you. Would you invite those people? You're going to have some awkward conversations. You're going to be sitting beside some awkward people. And guess what? So are they. <laughs> this Catholicity piece is so huge. Paul says there's no, no ways of understanding the world anymore the way we used to. Jew, Gentile, slave free, male, female, irrelevant. All are included as equal members in the body of Christ. We empower one another for their place at the table, if including that means giving up our space that they can have a place. This is so important. The final one, apostolic. One holy Catholic apostolic. Means very simply that we are anchored in the teaching the lifestyle and the mission of the apostles. Uh, Acts chapter 2, 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, 
All of these things are markers of this apostolic mission. This, uh, Peter took it seriously. The other guys took it seriously. We who have made that confession, this is the foundation. Everything gets measured against the cornerstone of who Jesus is. And if he decides it aligns, then it aligns. So this, this um, uh, teaching, and, and this meant over the next couple of hundred years, the rejection of teaching that didn't align to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this, in this way. Um, it, it, it's it's an, an invitation to let this new community that has been formed supersede all other ways of knowing, including, including family connections, and f- including family relationships. Uh, my primary orientation is, is toward my brothers and sisters in Christ, not toward my, 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 my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, my kids. No, my primary orientation, this is what it means to enjoy the Catholicity and the apostolicity of the church. And, and, and why? Well, because we have, we have a job to do. Remember a couple of weeks ago, again, uh, 11 disciples went to Jesus, Matthew 28, to Galilee, to the mountain where he was. They saw him, they worshiped him, they doubted their capacity. Jesus said to them, all authority in the heavens and on earth has been given to me. So here's what I want you guys to be doing. Get out of town. Go, 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 go. And as you're going, make friends for me. Make disciples for me. Here's how I want you to do it. I want you to soak people, immerse them, baptize them in the character of the Father, Son, and Spirit, which is love. And when you've done that well, maybe you'll get the opportunity to teach them how to live the way I've taught you to live. So this is mission-centric. All of, all, I hope you're figuring this out. All four of these are not about you. They're about us standing in the reality of one holy Catholic and apostolic so that we can be a mission-focused, an outward-focused community because the church does not exist for us. It exists for people who are not yet part, who do not yet know they are actually also us. And we get engaged and involved in that mission and, 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 and ministry. It's woven into the DNA. So what do we do with our church hurt? We bring it to Jesus. I don't know what he might do with yours. I know what he's done with mine, both received and afflicted. I know what he did with his. Remember, Jesus has gotten beaten up by the church too. What do we do with it? We bring it to him. What might he do with it? I don't know. Wouldn't it be fun to see rather than trying to figure out what to do with it yourself? Treasuring it and warming your hands over the fire that's burning and consuming you with bitterness and anger and resentment. And, and I'm, by the way, I do not mean to minimize any of the wounds that anybody has received. I'm just saying you can't heal them on your own. Bring them to Jesus. The church is comprised of nothing but messy people like you. And me. My dad told me, stop looking for the perfect church. And if you do happen to find one, for God's sake, please do not join it. Because <laughs> you'll just mess it up. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, we don't want to be perfect. And maybe that's part of the problem. We don't even want to make progress towards perfection sometimes. We don't want to repent of the ways that we've gotten stuck. We don't want to choose a new way to be. 
And I pray, O oh Lord, that as we land uh, on, on this uh, conversation, recognizing that church hurt is real, but the response is not abandonment. It's pressing in with repentance and forgiveness, modeling a better way, not just the wounds that we have received, but the wounds that we have inflicted. Help us, help us in this moment, Lord, to love the church the way you do, despite having been wounded by it. And I pray, Lord, as well, as each of these words resonates in our heart, that you, Holy Spirit, would use them to call us to become more and more effectively your people for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. We are Garden Church. To find out more about our community and to find resources to help you in your spiritual journey, visit garden.church.